talk to you again today about storms. I'm going to talk to you about God's promise in your storm. So let's read. I'm going to read out of Isaiah 41, one of my favorite passages. God gave me this passage for this time that I've gone through in Kathy's home going. He gave me this verse. He promised me this verse after her diagnosis. I'm preaching out of the crucible of my own experience. I don't get up here and preach theory to you. I I preach life to you and spiritual reality. So I want us to read Isaiah 41.10. And I want, since it's not very long, read it with me. It's so good. Are you ready? Now preach it, all of you. Read it good and loud. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. What will he do? I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, that's good stuff. Father, thank you for speaking to us today and giving us a handle to grab hold of in the middle of the storm. Thank you for giving us peace and for comforting your people today. I praise you for it and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, God's got a promise in your storm. God's got a promise in your storm. Storms do happen. They come out of nowhere. They do not send you a text message saying, you know what, next week I'm going to show up and and I'm going to strike you. I'm going to strike your house. I'm going to strike your family, your kids. We saw that last time. And, And a real storm, a genuine storm is threatening. It's really threatening in the natural. It's a threatening thing. It's sudden. It's unexpected. We don't see them coming. And we also saw last time that they, they serve a purpose in the life of the child of God because we have the promise of Romans eight twenty eight each and every time. He makes all things, all things, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. And part of all things is storms. He uses the good. He uses the bad. He uses the ugly. He uses the unexpected. He'll use anything. Anything that happens to you and to me is Plato in the hands of God. And he shapes it and shapes us. We saw that storms do three things. They reveal our weaknesses. And you know, they also reveal our strengths. But they reveal our weaknesses. What needs to be shored up? What needs to be strengthened? So they reveal our weaknesses, and they deepen our understanding of God. The disciples understood far more about Jesus when they landed on the other side after seeing him stand up and rebuke the wind and the waves. They learned way more about who they were following. This is very God. So when they got to the land of the Gadarenes, their understanding of God had deepened, and that's what storms do. They deepen our understanding of God. And then they prepare us for the next step every time. Uh, When you go through a storm and you make it to the other side, and if Jesus is in your boat, you're going to make it to the other side. And he was in the boat, and that's why they made it to the other side, or they would have gone down. When you get to the other side, you're going to find that what you just went through prepared you for what you're about to go through. It always prepares us for the next step. But today I want to talk to you about the promises of God in your storm. Now, God has not promised us a storm-free life. As a matter of fact, Jesus in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, said you're going to have storms. Winds are going to blow, rain is going to fall, and floods are going to strike your house of faith. 
Storms are a part of life because we're in a fallen world. Jesus said, you're going to have storms, and those storms are going to reveal how well you have built your life on the teachings of Jesus. He that hears these sayings of mine and does them, does them, lives them, builds their life around them. When the winds blow and the rain falls and the floods strike your house, it will not fall, Jesus said, because it's founded upon a rock. And the rock isn't just being saved, but the rock is what he just told us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The rock is his teachings, learning how to forgive, learning how not to worry, learning how to seek him first. Putting, your life, putting him first in your life. The many, many, many things that Sermon on the Mount alone, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, encapsulates all the teaching of Jesus. He said, if you build your life on what I've just told you, you're, you, you will not avoid storms, but the storms won't take you down. So we got to build our life on his word. But if you don't, he that hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I'm going to like him unto a fool who heard but didn't do, and the rain fell, the winds blew, the floods came, and beat on that house, and it fell. And it's always interesting to me that Jesus said, great was its fall. Because when a life collapses, when a life crashes, it's always a terrible thing. So right now, we're in a battle. And let me tell you who's going to come out on the other side shining, those that have built their lives on the teachings of Jesus. You know, I memorized Sermon on the Mount. I memorized every verse because I knew here is the teaching of Jesus in a nutshell. And he said, if I build my life on this, I will survive storms. You're looking at a storm survivor up here, but not because of me, because I trust the red ink. I read the red. I read what Jesus said, and I build my life on it. But Jesus has given us many, many promises in the storm. Now, in the text that we just read from Isaiah, God is speaking first person directly through the prophet Isaiah to his own people who are languishing in Babylonian captivity because of their own mistakes. He's speaking right to them, God, right through Isaiah, first person. These people are in a storm of their own making. They've, they've done it. They've brought themselves to this place. Through their own disobedience, they have literally lost everything. They lost their city. They lost their inheritance. They lost their destiny. They lost their families. They lost their money. They lost their crops. They lost their goods. They lost their honor. They lost it all. As the vast Babylonian army, like a stormy black cloud, descended upon them, and carry them all off into captivity. They burned down their temple. They burned down all their homes. They lost everything. Yet I want you to notice something. Even though they failed, we see that in the verses leading up to verse 10, God has called them not his failures, not his disappointments, not his rebel children, but he calls them his servants, his chosen his descendants of Abraham, God's friend. He assures them that he has not cast them away, even though they really seriously blew it. How many of you have ever really seriously blew it and you thank God that he loved you anyway? Come on. 
They, they really, they, they blew it. They blew it major, but God still loves them. And now in verse 10, he's coming to them while they're in captivity. They're not released yet. And he's encouraging them, beginning with fear not. I don't want you to be afraid, my people. Yes, you blew it. Yes, you did this to yourself. Yes, you're in captivity because of your own sin. But I don't want you to walk in a spirit of fear. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to live in torment in the foreign land. And he gives them the first reason for not being afraid. He said, let me tell you why you shouldn't be afraid. Because I am with you. You know, I can take a city if I know he's with me. I can walk over any, listen, I can climb any mountain. I can go through any valley. I can pass through any fire. I don't care if there's a thousand demons coming against me at once. If I know he's with me, I can go through it. What about you? Because if God be for us, who can be against us? So he says, don't be afraid because I promise you my presence, even though you're being chastened for what you did. I promise you my presence. And then he says, I don't want you to be dismayed either. Now, there is a difference between dismay and fear. Or he wouldn't tell them, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed either. There's a difference. Dismay has to do with whatever it is that has turned your focus away from God. That's dismay. Your upcoming bills, boy, they'll turn your focus away from God, especially if you don't have enough money. Uh, the, 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 the scary doctor's report, that'll turn your focus off of God. Your troubled marriage, you can get so caught up in your troubles at home. You lose sight of God. Your rebellious children can so break your heart that you get your focus off of God. That's when you become dismayed. He said, I don't want you to be afraid, and I don't want you to be dismayed. I don't want you to be distracted by earthly circumstances where your focus is taken off of me. Because he will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is focused on him. Focus is everything. Focus is so important to victory or defeat. You, you will go through something in victory or go down in something in defeat based on your focus. So he says, don't focus on the circumstances. Don't be dismayed. Fear looks within. Dismay looks around. Faith looks up. And, and right there, everybody in this room is doing one of those three, probably a little bit of all three, depending on the time of day. But... You get afraid by looking within. I can't do it. I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm collapsing. I'm failing. I'm, I feel weak. And, and then you look around. Look at these circumstances. It seems like they're all against me. You know, Jacob said, all these things are against me. And you look around and you get focused on the circumstances. But then if we can just stop and say, now get your eyes off circumstances. Get your eyes off of yourself because neither of those two are going to save you. He's going to save you. So get your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Amen. God is saying to them, I know you're in captivity in a foreign land, and I know that circumstances look bleak, but don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on me Focus on me, for I am your God. Oh, I love the Lord. Can we just all turn our heads just up for a minute 
And with your eye of faith, just look at him and say, Lord, I'm focused on you. I'm focused on you. I focus my faith on you. Amen, amen. And I want to say to all of you here today who have made a mistake, maybe a bad mistake, you're sitting in here and you're feeling like, who am I to be in church? Because I have really, if if everybody in here knew where I've been, what I've done, I'd be run out of church. No, you would not. Because you know what? You're in a house full of people who sin and who fall and who make mistakes. And our perfection is not in our own actions. Our perfection is what has been declared over us by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, we are sinless. All right? But I want to say to those of you that have made a bad mistake, and you're sitting in church and you're feeling condemned and you're feeling really beat down and you're mad at yourself and you're mad at your circumstances. Listen, God didn't forsake Israel. When they failed so badly, they lost everything he had given them. He forgave them. He stayed with them and he walked them through their storm. And one day they were released and they went back to their homeland and they made it. His heart towards you is the same today. I want you to know that. He says to you what he says to them, you are my servant, you are my chosen, you are the apple of my eye and the darling of my heart, and I gave my life for you, and though you walk out on me, I will never walk out on you. I am with you in your storm. I'm going to walk you through your storm. I am greater in you than he that is in the world. You're going to make it to the other side, so pull your head up and look up because God's going to come through for you. He's going to help you. Now, now, next, God gives them three promises. I love these because every one of these words is different. Three promises for their soul. I love anchors for the soul. For me, Bible verses are anchors for my soul. He, he gives me an anchor. Now, I'm going to give you three anchors today. He says, first, I will strengthen you. I will strengthen you. Can we say together, he will strengthen me? Let's say it like we really mean it. He will strengthen me. Because the last thing you feel in a storm is strong. He says, I'm going to strengthen you. Now, just one chapter before the one that we're reading out of, 41.10, in chapter 40, God says this to the weary and the storm-tossed and the weak. Here's what he says. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. Our God never gets tired. He never says, I need to take a nap. He never says, boy, I feel weak today. No, our God is mighty. He is always strong. He never faints, nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And now look what it says he does. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases. Say it with me. He increases. What does he do? He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men will come into circumstances where they utterly fall and their strength fails them. But those, I want you to read this with me, but those who wait on the Lord, read it good and loud, shall renew their strength. I will strengthen you. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. I'm going to tell you, I have never run and not finally gotten weary. This is talking about a supernatural 
endowment of power that is beyond flesh, beyond mortal man, beyond anything you can do on your own. He's saying, I'm going to strengthen you in such a way that you run and you run and you run and you run and you run. And when other people would drop out, you keep on going. And your strength is going to be renewed, renewed, renewed. Now, when he says, those who wait on the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, there's the key. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. So we need to understand what it means to wait on the Lord. If that's the person, if that's the one who's going to renew their strength and run and not faint, then what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means this, to bind together by twisting. Now, if I had a kite string right here, if I had a kite string in, in one hand and a steel cable in the other, I can easily snap that kite string. Easy. Pump. I can snap it in my own strength. But if I wrap that kite string around that steel cable, and then I try to break it, I'll never do it because that kite string is now as strong as the steel cable because of what it's wrapped around. And that's exactly what this means here. It doesn't, see, it doesn't mean those that wait on the Lord like you're standing at a bus stop waiting for somebody to show up. No, it, no this, is, this is a verb. This is, this is somebody pressing in. This is somebody pressing in and they are seeking Jesus and wrapping themselves around Jesus and seek and putting him first and, and, and getting to know him and growing in him and, and saying, Lord Jesus, you're everything to me. I'm going to wrap my life around you. Suddenly you can't take that person down because now they're as strong as he is. Well, that's good stuff. I'm going to get this CD. You need to hear that. Because how strong are you? You're only as strong as your last time with God. When was your last time with God? Well, I was with God last Sunday in church. That won't do. What about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? You need to get with God. Get with God. Seek the Lord. Get with him in the morning. Because when you do and you read that Bible and you internalize and assimilate those promises, then you become as strong as the one you're seeking. Oh, yes, amen, amen, amen. The early service is quiet, but the wheels are turning. I tell myself, I'm, now I'm going to go real calm in the early service, so I've got some strength left in the, in the second one. But every time I blow it, because I'm starting to get worked up a little bit, I want you to know this is real. This is real. This is real stuff. So in a, in a storm, listen, don't seek God last when you've tried everything else. Seek him first. When the winds blow, the rains fall, and the floods hit, and out of nowhere comes a storm. Don't say, well, I'm going to my psychologist, and I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do that. No, no. Go to him first and wrap yourself around him. So everybody say, he's going to strengthen me. Second promise he gives us, anchor for the soul, is I will help you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. I don't mean to quote the Beatles, but let me. A little help from my friends. They did a whole album called Help. Now, I sure don't lift the Beatles up because they were part of the reason I went off into drugs. But let me tell you, they had one thing right. We need help. 
We need help from our friends. People say to me, oh, that Christianity is a crutch for you. I say, yep, that's right. I lean on that crutch every day. What's yours? Are you snorting it? Are you sniffing it? Are you smoking it? Are you drinking it? What's your crutch? I admit to you I've got a crutch. I lean on him. Learning to lean. Learning to lean. Learning to lean on Jesus. I'm not ashamed of it. He's my strength. He's my fortress. He's my God. He's my Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is my provider. He is my healer. He is my deliverer. I'm not afraid to say it. Amen. I love the psalm that says, God is our refuge and strength. An abundantly available, tested help. In time of trouble. And so we need not fear even if the world blows up. And it might, November 8th. But listen to what he says. We need not fear even if the world blows. I'm reading the Bible. Psalms 46. The Living Bible. It's a paraphrase, but it's good. So we need not fear even if the world blows up and the mountains crumble in the sea. He's giving us the worst possible scenario. Total destruction, total devastation. And he says, even in that, I will not fear because he's my helper. He's my help. He's going to help me. He's going to come through for me. When storms strike, he's there. A tried and proven help who is available in abundance. In the New Testament, Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Why are we going to the throne of grace? Here's what we're after. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to what? Help. Say it again. Help when in time of need, he helps you. The word help here is so powerful. It means especially critical assistance that meets an urgent situation. I'm going to read that again. That we may find grace to help. That is, to bring especially critical assistance that meets an urgent situation, delivering very needed aid. Good stuff. In other words, God comes through with everything you need and then some. God will help you. He will never turn away. He will never ignore you in your hour of need. That throne of grace is sitting there waiting for you to come and say, probably the most anointed prayer you can pray is one word. Say it with me. Help! And God throws the lifesaver. He sends his angels. He'll move mountains and bring up valleys. He'll do whatever he's got to do to get to you with the help you need. You won't go down, but you will go through. I love what Paul said. He said, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed and broken because he's my helper. We are perplexed because we don't know why things happen as they do. But we don't give up and quit because he's my helper. We are hunted down, but God never abandons us because he's my helper. We get knocked down, but we get up again. Oh, I like that one. That's my favorite one right there. We get knocked down, but we get up again and keep going because he's my helper. You remember that clown, Bozo the Clown? I had one when I was a little kid. What Bozo would do is you'd hit him with all your might, and he'd bounce right back up and look at you. You know what Christians are? Now, I'm not calling you clowns. 
But I was saying, Christians are that way. You can get hit hard. You can get hit hard. Paul was, was stoned where they left him for dead. And the next day, he got up again. What is it that empowers the Christian to get up again? It's the resurrection power, the same power that got Jesus up out of the grave, lives in us, lives in us. And when people will stand over you and give the count, 10, 9, 8, right about when they get to 2, the believer gets up again. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So everybody say with me, he'll strengthen me. He'll help me. And here's a third anchor in my last one. He'll uphold you. He'll uphold you. That means I'm going to hold you up when you can't do it on your own. I can't think of a better example of upholding than the story of Derek Redmond. You may not know that name. Some of you do. Who's best remembered for his performance at the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Spain, where he tore his hamstring in the 400-meter semifinal. Now, let me tell you about Derek. He was rounding the track. He was heavily favored to win. He was a, a sterling athlete. And he's making the round, and the crowd is cheering. And it looks like he's going to win. And suddenly, he himself heard something snap. And his leg went into agony, and he collapsed on the track in front of all Those people watching in person and millions watching by television, Derek Redman collapsed. He tried getting up again. He didn't realize that his hamstring had completely snapped. He's up again, but all he can do is limp. He said, I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to keep on going. I I think my leg's going to come back into use. If I just kind of take a few more steps, maybe maybe I can run again. But all he can do is limp. All he can do is limp. And the whole crowd now is no longer watching the finish line because everybody's focused on Derek Redman, who is limping while everybody else passes him by. He's limping. And he's doing his, he's not giving up. He's not laying down. He's not saying, I quit. He's limping. And suddenly out of nowhere, a figure appears. It's his father. Came down out of the stands. Runs onto the track. The officials tried pushing him back. He said, get away from me. I'm going to help my son. He runs up to his son, puts his arms around him, holds him up, and the two of them cross the finish line. That's uphold. That's uphold. That's uphold. It's so good, I want to show you the clip. And as I show you this clip, I want you to notice the father running up to him, and I want you to think when you see it, There is a perfect picture of my heavenly father and how he upholds me when I can't hold myself up. Here's the clip.
together. I could watch that a hundred times and it would break me up. Have you ever been like Derek? Running a good race and all of a sudden you make a mistake. You fall. You make a bad decision. And the whole world seems to be watching. You try to get up, but you're not the same. You try running, but all you can do is limp. And then, out of nowhere, comes the Father. And He upholds you. He strengthens us. He helps us. He upholds us. And he helps us across that finish line. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Father, we thank you right now.